Good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to be here with you and to feel the presence of God together. If you would, I'd like to begin with prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray in your name that you would help us this morning. Open the word of life to us. The word that we live by. Show us things we've never seen before. And draw us into deeper relationship with you through your spirit and through your truth. Convict our hearts. Encourage our hearts. Unite our hearts together as one. Lord, I ask you to help me. I ask you to anoint me. Give me the words to say and how to say them. In your precious name I pray. Amen. If you'll bear with me, I want to do something a little unusual this morning. I want to go to John chapter 6. And I want to read an interesting verse to you. And then I want to just let it hang there a little bit in suspense. Then we'll proceed through the message and we'll come back to answer the question this verse raises. John chapter 6. To be fair to the chapter, it's very long. (laughs) But somewhere in the middle of it here, Jesus begins to tell them, verse 35, I am the bread of life who comes. He who comes to me will not hunger And he who believes in me will never thirst. And he goes on to say what would be some of his most troubling words. He tells these Jews that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. They did not have a context to understand what he possibly could be meaning. And we're told just in the previous verses that uh, in the beginning of John 6, and he feeds the 5,000. And we're told that there were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Some would even speculate there were as many as 20,000 people following Jesus at that time. And it's at this time that almost seems the height of his popularity, the height of his, the greatest following that he's ever had. It's at this time that he chooses to speak what the Jews term a hard message. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And we can speculate as to why he said that, why he used those words. But what we do know is that John does not record him going to great lengths to explain it. Jesus knows that the people are following him for natural reasons. They like the loaves and the fishes. They like the performance of miracles and such. But they're following him for natural reasons, many of them. And it's those people he rebukes. And so it's as if he chooses his words to this naturally minded people. He chooses words that cannot be understood in a natural framework. You cannot hear the words unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood and give that a natural interpretation. You have to open your mind and heart to the possibility of spiritual understanding and spiritual interpretation to even absorb those words. And I believe that's why Jesus chose those words. It says in verse 52, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me 
he also will, will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? They were his followers. They were his disciples. They had spent days with him. They had perhaps followed him for years. His disciples said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them. And this is the verse that I want us to consider. And then we're going to come back and answer its question at the end of the message. Jesus says to them, does this cause you to stumble? This concept of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Does this cause you to stumble? Does this cause you to be offended is the literal. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. He goes on and he tells, asks the disciples if they will want to go also. Jesus said to the twelve, verse 67, You do not want to go also, do you? Simon Peter answered and said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I want to underline verse 62. Jesus says, does this offend you? Does the concept of eating his flesh and drinking his blood offend you? Well, then how offended are you going to be when you see the Son of Man ascending into heaven? Now, I want to ask you a question. Does it make sense to you that people would be offended at the statements about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? I think so, because that's a difficult thing for us to understand. Would you agree? But what on earth is offensive about seeing the Son of Man ascend into heaven? I want you to ponder that. I'm going to leave that question suspended. And then we're going to come back to it at the end of the message. What on earth is offensive about seeing the Son of Man ascend into heaven? Why would that offend anybody? I would love to see that. I would have loved to have been there, I think. But I shouldn't judge. Okay? Do we have the question? Let's just leave it hanging there in space. It's just right here somewhere. And now I want to move on. <clears throat> I want to turn to Luke chapter 2. Brothers and sisters, will you bear with me in this? I beg your pardon. Thank you. Luke chapter 2 is a story of Jesus has just been born. I'm going to go on down to, um, to verse 27. Jesus has just been born. And in accordance with the law, after his miraculous conception and birth, in accordance with the law of Moses... Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, take Jesus to the temple to offer their customary sacrifice on the eighth day. And when they get to the temple, they meet a man whose name is Simeon, hearer of God. And Simeon has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon has been a prophet in the temple knowing that God was soon bringing more. He wasn't satisfied with the current place he was at or the current place 
the, Jew, the Jewish synagogue, the Jewish religion was at at that time. And he was anticipating that God was going to visit his people. Simeon was like many throughout history who did not use their past understanding or their past righteousness as an excuse to hold God off when he called them to take further steps toward him. Martin Luther, when he came on the scene, he didn't fit in with the status quo. He didn't agree with the righteous men who had come before him. He was a, a Franciscan. And yet, he violated the teachings of the Franciscans. Those who he emulated and looked up to and studied under, was taught by. Martin Luther, in the end, would take steps of faith that were far beyond what the people of his day had ever taken. Now they judged him in his day just like some will judge in this day. And they said, do you think you know better than all those who have come before you? Do you think you're more righteous? And all he thought was this, that the fullness of the church was seen in the New Testament and that somehow from the 200s and 300s it had fallen into deep darkness. Christ had been replaced by the Pope. Justification by faith had been replaced with human sacraments and indulgences. And the church was in a place of pitch, darkness, and powerlessness. And Luther believed that God in His providence and grace was going to call that church out of its spiritual Egypt, out of its darkness, and into the fullness of His restored light. And Luther was one of the first to step out and take steps of faith in restoring what had been lost. So he did not judge himself by his contemporaries. He judged himself by the apostles and the New Testament church. They tried to kill him. They tried to silence him. And he wasn't perfect. Did he take all the steps that were necessary? Certainly not. He took a couple steps. And then somebody else came along. Calvin took a couple more steps. Many of them, all of those reformers, Conrad Radel, Felix Mons, they took steps. And slowly but surely, the church that had been completely swallowed up in darkness was emerging back into the light of God. As he says in Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn. Shining brighter and brighter and brighter till the full light of day. When the pastor who sent the first pilgrims over to America, when he prayed for them and commissioned them, he said to them, Follow me only as far as I have followed Christ. He said, Calvin and Luther were great and shining lights. But we cannot think that the church has so soon come from deep darkness so as to already reach the fullness of God's truth. Follow me only as far as I follow Christ. He charged them to keep seeking the restored church. Roger Williams, said to be the very first Baptist, he was the same. He didn't say Luther was enough. He didn't judge himself by the steps that those prior had taken either. He judged himself by the word of God because there's no other plumb line. There's no other foundation that can be laid than that which is laid. Christ Jesus. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So Roger Williams, the man who founded Providence, Rhode Island, who was hunted and hounded, persecuted, his life threatened by other Christians in America because of, as yet the freedoms had not been agreed upon. This first Baptist... He said the same thing. He said, we know we have not come into the true church because we do not see the apostolic gifts that are evidenced in the New Testament. He was hated. He said, I will not take communion with anybody. I will not set up any churches. 
I will not pretend that what we have is the real thing. I'm paraphrasing. Until God visits us and brings us into greater light. When He said that we must be baptized by immersion, there were those who stood up and said, You arrogant man! How dare you say you're better than Luther and Calvin? Amen. There are always those who want to use past righteousness and obedience as an excuse to not obey God when He calls them out. Just like the children of Israel, when Moses first came on the scene, they didn't say, oh, thank God, finally our deliverer. They said, who made you rule over us? Human nature is such that we don't want to change. We don't want to move when the Holy Spirit asks us to. And we will label as enemies of God Christ Himself when He come, when He came. Amen. Jesus said there will be a time when they will persecute you. They will drag you into synagogues. They will beat you and they will kill you. And they will believe that they are doing God a service. The worst enemies of truth are filled with self-righteousness. But Simeon wasn't one of these people. Simeon was a man who served in the temple of God, was called of God, he was a prophet. But in his old age, he was still looking for more light. He was still saying, don't let me die, Lord, until I see the consolation of Israel. Don't let me die, Lord, until I get answers to these questions that are in my soul. In verse 22, when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. And he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's Christ or Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, O Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, your Yeshua, literally, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is what Simeon feels when he takes this eight-year-old baby into his arms. He senses that the sun is rising with healing in its wings. That the path of the righteous is about to get brighter. Amen? And he's excited by this. But this is not the end of his prophecy. Here in verse 33, And his father and mother were amazed at these things which were being said about him, that is Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, now listen, this is the point, Behold, this child shall cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And he shall be a sign to be spoken against that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. And he says to Mary, and a sword shall pierce even your own soul. 
So he's excited to see Jesus. He's blessed to see Jesus. He says now he can die in peace because he's seen Jesus. But he says that Jesus is going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And anytime light comes into the world, what does Jesus tell us the problem is? The darkness does not comprehend the light. The darkness cannot get its dark mind and its dark thoughts around the light. It wants to swallow it up. It wants to absorb it. Oh yeah, we know about that. But when light comes into the world, the darkness doesn't comprehend it. So then what happens? Jesus tells us in John 3, 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Because we want to stay in disobedience to God, when more light shines in our path, we say, oh, Luther, that child of the devil. We say, oh, Roger Williams. What does he think he know? We say, John Wesley, isn't he satisfied with what God has already shown the church? Or we say it today in our own lives. I have enough of God. Don't make me feel guilty. Don't make me feel convicted that it's time to receive more. I have enough. And so with this harsh taskmaster mindset of God, we don't like more light. Please, thank you. I have a nightlight in the kingdom of this world that I'm very comfortable in. And I go and peek at that nightlight every now and again and tell myself that I'm walking in the light as he is in the light. And I have fellowship with one another and the blood cleanses me from all sin. Don't turn on that spotlight. Get it out of my life. This is the judgment. You know what the word judgment is in Greek? It's the word krisis. And it literally means separation. This is the judgment that light comes into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They don't want to come into more obedience to God. They don't want to come into more humility before God. They don't want to have the heart of Simeon. Amen. They want to have the heart of the Pharisee. You're not even 50 years old. The Pharisees told Jesus, Jesus, Simeon said, Behold, this child is appointed to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. And even Mary was going to have her own heart pierced. There was a time, I believe it's Mark 4, when Jesus is preaching and Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters come, and I quote, to arrest him because they said he has lost his mind. And what did Jesus say to Mary? What did Jesus say of his mother when they said, your mother and your brothers are waiting outside, Lord? What did Jesus say to him? He said, who is my mother and my brothers and my sisters, but those who do the will of my father? Do you think a sword pierced Mary's heart at that point? Do you think God was bringing a separation at that point? See, when the sword of God comes, it pierces and divides some of the soul and spirit joined in marrow. It is a discernment of the thoughts and intents of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all is naked and bare before the eyes of whom we have to do. When that slur comes, it comes to separate sin from righteousness. That's what the sword is there to do. And if you love your sin, if you love your deeds that are evil, then you are separated from God. You stay with your sin and you're separated from God. But that's not why God brought the sword. He brought the sword to separate the sin from you. And if we're not so committed to our sin, then the sword is like a scalpel that is freeing us from a cancer that is killing us. 
And we don't resent the Word of God. And we don't hate the sword of God. But we love conviction. Amen. Amen. We say, pierce me, Lord. Pierce my heart. Amen. Go right to where it hurts, God. Because I want this sin to be separated out of me. So that I will not be separated out of your people, of your light, of your presence. Mary was told by Simeon, Behold, this child is appointed to cause the falling and rising in many in Israel. And he will be a sign to be spoken against. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Amen. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. To set a man against his children, children against their parents, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Do not think that I came to bring peace, but I thought he was the Prince of Peace. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Oh, there's peace on earth and goodwill for those who allow the sword to cut sin out of them, and they become one. They become the people of God, the children of God. He is going to cause the falling and rising. And every time light begins to shine, there is falling and rising. We see people go to heights with God that they never believed were possible. And we see others completely bottom out in slander, in judgments, and ultimately in dissipation. But there's always some who rise and some who fall. What kind of person am I? What kind of person are you? Will the light of God cause your falling or will the light of God cause your rising? Will the light of God separate you? He that separates himself seeks his own desire and he rages against all wise judgment. Will the light of God separate me from his people and from what he's doing, his light and his presence? Or will the light of God separate from me Everything that offends so that I can be completely one and have this peace that he brings, not as the world brings. The world brings a phony peace, a peace of compromise, a peace of deception, a peace of of hypocrisy. A peace that says, you don't mention my sin and I won't mention yours. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. We'll just have this self-congratulatory society where we smile and love each other, quote unquote. That's not real love. Real love sees someone who's dying of cancer and says, you have got to go under the blade and have that cancer removed from you. Real love recognizes sin and it says, brother, sister, let's stand beneath the sword so that sin can be taken out and we can be grafted in. He shall be for the rising and falling of many in Israel. So when God begins to work, because, brothers and sisters, believe it or not, the church is not restored, we are still in the process of becoming more like Jesus. There are still truths to learn. There are still patterns to understand. There is still power to receive. There is still love to rise up and and, and embrace. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. When the light of God begins to shine in your life, will He cause your falling or will He cause your rising? Will He cause my falling or will He cause my rising? He will cause separation one way or the other. (laughs) That's inevitable. That's going to happen. A sword pierced Mary's heart. And at first, I imagine she must have been offended. She came there offended. She came there to to arrest her son because in her thoughts, he had gone crazy. But in the end, she wasn't offended. In the end, she was with those on the day of Pentecost when the church was founded and the Spirit was poured out. She was with them. In the end, she was there and saw the resurrection. 
In the end, she was part of the faithful. In the end, all the flesh and carnality and pride and vanity and fear of man, all of that was cut from Mary's heart and Mary was grafted into the life of God. In the end, the same heart that the Lord saw when He sent the angel to say, Blessed art thou among women. That heart prevailed and led her through to complete oneness and obedience to God. Amen. In the end, the Lord continued to look upon His lowly one. Can we be those kind of people? Don't you want to be that kind of person? Judgment is Croesus. Croesus means separation. God doesn't judge us. He just shines His light. And He causes the falling and rising of many in Israel. Hmm. You see, why was Mary offended? Because she had expectations about Jesus that Jesus was disappointing. Did Mary have good expectations about Jesus, brothers and sisters? Did she? Of course she did. Grandma says, of course. She had great expectations about Jesus. Remember all the things the wise men said? Remember all the things the angels said? She hid these things in her heart. She treasured these things in her heart. She knew who Jesus was. She, of all people, had more expectation for Jesus than anybody else. But somehow, somewhere along the way, Jesus started disappointing those expectations. All the Jews at that time, they were suffering under the oppression of Rome. And for generations they had believed that God was going to send a Messiah. Someone who was going to come in and fix their country and get rid of these crazies. And restore the reign of David, their father. That is what the Messiah meant to the Jews. He meant someone who is going to come in and reign in political power. Amen? That's what they wanted. Even the Pharisees wanted that. In the end, when the Jews revolted against the Romans, it was the Pharisees who led the charge. Ironic that they accused Jesus of insurrection. They were quoting from their own playbook. So what offended Mary was that Jesus was disappointing her expectations. And it offended people throughout His ministry. God would start doing something and people just couldn't get their minds around it. They liked the miracles, the loaves and fishes and all that is great. But what happened right after the loaves and the fishes in Mark's version of the gospel? What happened? Jesus is on the hill and right after the loaves and the fishes they took a crown and they tried to forcibly make it king. Do you see how they were interpreting all this? They wanted a king. Don't we all want a king? Amen. King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, they wanted a king. Amen. But they, they saw it in the natural. They saw it in the political. Amen. And they thought he was the one. They expected that he was the man who could wear this crown. But he didn't, he didn't show any interest in the kingdoms of this world. And he began to disappoint them. Do I still have your attention, brothers and sisters? Yes. Thank you. He began to disappoint them. In some of the greatest moments of his life, they completely misunderstood. Like when God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They just heard thunder, didn't they? <laughs> when Nicodemus came to Jesus, Nicodemus came at night so he wouldn't be seen by men. And he says, Lord, he says, Jesus, we know you're sent from God for no one could do the things you're doing unless God was with him. It was like Nicodemus was finally working up the courage to believe this was their man. Jesus didn't say, I'm, fine. I'm glad you finally came around, Nicodemus. Why don't we have a town hall meeting tomorrow? Jesus didn't say that. 
What did he say? He shifted the focus from Jesus and he put it right back on Nicodemus. And he said, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came to Jesus because Nicodemus wanted to see the kingdom of God. And he was thinking, maybe Jesus is our man. And the kingdom is finally going to be restored. Maybe he came at night so he wouldn't be seen by the Romans as well as the Jews. He wants this kingdom to come. And Jesus tells him, unless you're born again, you can't even see it. Your natural eyes cannot perceive what God is about to do. Just like your natural ears will only hear thunder when God speaks from heaven. What God, what Jesus came to do, Nicodemus didn't have eyes to see. So he says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is very troubled by this statement. How can I enter my mother's womb again? And Jesus says, do not marvel that I say you must be born again. Because that which is born of flesh is flesh. His implication is that the kingdom is not flesh. Kingdom is not natural. So you have got to be born of the spirit in order to have eyes to see the kingdom that is spiritual. Do not marvel that I say you must be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. The wind blows where it wishes. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But you hear the sound of it. So is it with everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus never got it. But that is what Jesus came to bring. He came to bring a spiritual kingdom. In the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul would also say, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus would say in Luke 19 to those who thought the kingdom would appear immediately, and I quote, he would tell the kingdom of God is like a man who went on a journey. It doesn't appear immediately. It grows with investment. It starts with the first thing of God, or you might say, with one shekel, with one talent. But you build it, and you build it, and you build it, until pretty soon that first you're reigning only. You're only going to have a shekel in your life, but pretty soon you're reigning over kingdoms and cities. The kingdom of God does not appear automatically. Jesus told them, the kingdom of God does not come with signs to be observed. They will not say, here it is, or there it is. But He said, the kingdom of God is inside of you. Literally, in you, around you, in your midst. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's why you have to be born of the Spirit in order to see the kingdom. We can live our whole lives just hearing thunder. We can live our whole lives seeing a flash like they saw with Paul on the road to Damascus. But God wants to give us new eyes to see, new ears to hear. So that we not be offended, but we become part of the kingdom of the Son of His love. You say, well, the kingdom of God is coming in thousands of years. Maybe, it was, maybe it's going to come... After this, or maybe it's going to come after that, in Mark 9, verse 1, Jesus, Jesus has just told them that He's going to die. In the previous verses of, of Mark 8, He has just told them that He's going to die. Do you remember what Peter's response to that was? Well, of course, Lord, we know what you're coming to do. Is that what Peter said? What was Peter's response? Peter was offended. Why was Peter offended? Because his expectations were being upended. Peter also wanted Jesus to restore the natural kingdom to Israel. And death on the cross had nothing to do with that. But a sword is about to pierce Peter's heart as well. Jesus said he's going to die, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, but he's going to rise the third day. Peter doesn't hear about resurrection, he doesn't hear about the power of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean anything to him because he doesn't have the context to understand it. He hears thunder, but it makes him very nervous. And he says, no, Lord. Mm -mm. No. This will not happen. 
We will not let this happen. As a matter of fact, in many of the Gospels, it says Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Very much the attitude that Mary and his siblings had when they came to arrest him. No, this is not what's going to happen. We will not let this be. What did Jesus say to Peter? Hmm. He said, get thou behind me, Satan, because you savor the things that be of man. How does Satan reign in this world? How does Satan cheat us out of the power of God? By getting us to savor, to love the flavor of the things of man. That's how Satan assumes control over our lives. He gives us fruit that is pleasing to the eye and good for food. He appeals to the things we love in the flesh. But the kingdom of God, flesh and blood cannot inherit it. This is Mark 8, the end, last verses. Jesus says in Mark 9, right after he says he's going to die, right after he calls Peter is Satan. In Mark 9, 1, he says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, there are those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now all of the apostles died, but all of them saw the kingdom of God come with power before they died, that is except Judas. Amen. They all saw the kingdom of God come with power. When did it come? It came when Jesus said, go and tarry in Jerusalem until you be clothed with power. It's the same word He used here. The kingdom of God come with dunamis from on high. Go and tarry in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of My Father. Until you be clothed with power from on high. And you will be my witnesses. What did the apostles say to Jesus just before he ascended? And now we're coming around to why ascension might cause offense. Remember John 6, 63? Why would that offend anybody? Hmm? What did the apostles say to Jesus in Acts 1, 3? Right before he ascended. What was their last question? They said something like this. Lord, we just want you to know. You know I'm lying, right? <laughs> Lord, we just want you to know that we understand why you died, why you were resurrected, and we're going to be your faithful following down here. And we get it all. Is that what they said? What did they say? It was as if they said the opposite. As it was as if Jesus, they wanted to tell him, before you leave, we just want you to know we don't have a clue what you came to do and why all this has happened. He's died for this. He's died for them. They don't really understand why. They're going to wait in Jerusalem because He told them to, but they don't understand why. And just before He lifts His feet off the earth, what's the last thing they said to Him? Lord, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still had that natural expectation. And Jesus, in response to kingdoms being restored, what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know times and seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, but, and here, he plants the seed of a different kind of kingdom. But, after that, the Holy Spirit, wait the city of Jerusalem, and until you receive the promise of my Father, for John be baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And after that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my governors? No. Generals? No. You will be my witnesses, my martyrs in Jerusalem. There is the kingdom starting right there. In Judea. In Samaria. This is a big kingdom, John. Did you hear that, James? Even to the uttermost ends of the earth. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Amen. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit.
So my prayer this morning is God, give us the courage to set in the light. Give us the courage to believe that there is more. As the world becomes more wicked every day, <coughs> as marriage is destroyed, as parents are mocked, <coughs> as the society is broken apart, we find ourselves at a time like Luther found himself, like Calvin found himself, like John Wesley found himself, like Roger Williams found himself, like Moses found himself. A time when God is shining a pillar of fire, when God is trying to restore his people to more love more power, more of the reality of himself. The light is shining. With the light comes separation. Some will rise, some will fall. It's up to us what, which one will happen. So why would they be offended when they saw the Son of Man rise into heaven, brothers and sisters? If all of their hopes and dreams and expectations and understanding were invested in this natural kingdom, then they would have been terribly disappointed to see Jesus do the greatest thing in his whole ministry, and that is rise up into heaven the glory of the Father. Do you see how great things can offend? Do you see how the ascension of Christ himself can offend us if it does not fit in the small boxes of our expectations? That is why we must humble ourselves and tread softly. Amen. And let God open our minds to the work of His hands. Open our minds and hearts to see things we've never seen. I think of another time when they didn't understand what was happening in the Spirit. Just after Jesus is risen, two of His disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember? And they're walking along and they're sad. And they're talking about what has just happened. This is Luke 24. They're walking along. Is it 24? No, it's 22, I believe. Let me see. 20. No, it's 2432. There it is. They're walking along on the road to Emmaus and they're sad. And all of a sudden, a stranger comes and he starts walking with them. And he says, What are you guys talking about? So, well, you know what's happened over the last few days in Jerusalem. Huh. He knows all things, doesn't he? But he doesn't say that. He says to them, what's happened? Right. Fill me in, please, since you know so well. He's the one that's happened too, but he wants to hear it from them. And they say, well, there was this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and we thought he was, and you wish they would have said the Messiah. But they said, we thought he was a prophet. And he was going to lead the people. He was going to restore Israel. But our chief priests and the rulers of the people, they crucified him. What does Jesus say? What does he say? Oh, you slow of heart to believe all the scriptures have said. And then he opens the scriptures. And he to show them the spiritual reality is so much greater. They are walking with the resurrected Christ and they don't know it. They're gobbling and complaining about what they don't have, about what they lost. And the resurrected Christ is walking with them. And as he's opening the scriptures, as I hope the Lord is doing for us today, their eyes are open. Listen to the call of God and try not to become a 
hear the voice of God through John the Baptist. The blind see their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the poor have the gospel preached, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John the Baptist heard those words as he sat behind prison bars. And in that cell he would be put to death. But he was he died without offense. He died knowing that God was going to fulfill his promise. And that he had no reason to be offended, literally disappointed. That's what the Randy reminded us this week. Amen. His ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways and our ways. And if the light is shining, let it make me rise and not fall. Let it separate sin from me and not me from God. If the light is shining and I don't understand it, does my heart burn within me? Does my heart burn within me? If I hear thunder, do I have the courage to keep following until that thunder becomes words of clarity and life, words that will change me, words that I can live by? Let's pray. Lord, we know that it is so easy to complain. To complain at the weakness of the church to complain at the wickedness of the world. To complain even at the silence of God in our lives. And yet we, the complainers, when at first the light of dawn begins to grow on our path and shine brightly to lead us into more truth, we, the complainers, are the ones who mock, who cock our heads, who judge, who dismiss who say, why should we be so different? But today, may our hearts burn within us as you remind us that the church is on a journey of restoration and that as sin increases, grace must much more increase. May our hearts burn within us as you separate us from everything that holds us back, from believing and seeing and partaking of your life, your victory, your Holy Spirit. We want to see the kingdom of God come in our lives with power before we taste death. We want to see victory over sin. We know we'll never be perfect, but we welcome your power, the power of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit into our lives. Open our eyes to see things we've never seen. Open our hearts to believe things we don't understand. And give us the courage to walk in the light as you're in the light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.